0: The word, um, the word jealous does not conjure up a lot of happy thoughts, I think, with people. It's kind of a negative term. We might think of a, a little child who's jealous that her friend has the doll that she wanted and now she wants it. Or, or uh, his neighbor has the new bike that he wanted and he's jealous. He wants that. Or we might think of a coworker. Who was hoping for that promotion, that particular spot, but someone else was promoted ahead, and now he's turning green with envy and jealousy, if not bitterness. Or maybe you think of a of a jealous lover who can't keep uh, his special someone out of his eyes because afraid he's afraid that uh, um, she may be taken away, snatched away by someone else, or. Or a jealous spouse who um, irrationally um, hounds um, the significant other spouse because um, of fear that maybe his or her eyes will be taken somewhere else. Jealousy. It's not not a very pleasant word. Which is why we may shudder when we read a verse like Exodus 34, 14. For you shall not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. For the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. You would think God would want to be named by something else, like the God of grace, the God of all mercy, the God of all compassion. The omnipotence. I like those terms. God does too. I mean, they all fit with God. But jealous? My name is Jealous. And it's all over the Scriptures. Book of Deuteronomy, chapter 4, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire. He's a jealous God. Or chapter 6, you shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. For the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, your God, in the midst of you. He's a jealous God. What does it mean that God is a jealous God? I mean, that's seemingly such a negative um, title for the God that we worship. The, The Hebrew word that is used for that word jealous is an interesting word. As often Hebrew language is, it's very visceral, it's very down to earth, and uh, it's a word that simply means to become red because the picture is of, of a face turning red with, with jealousy, with anger. That's my name, says God, Jehovah. I'm a jealous God. What makes God's face turn red? If, if you turn with me just briefly to Exodus chapter 20, In Exodus chapter 20, when Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt to the foot of Mount Sinai to get the the law, the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, Then God spoke all these words and said, I am the Lord, I'm Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 3, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in the heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. Verse 5 says, You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, Yahweh, the Lord, Jehovah, I'm your God, and I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. What turns God's face red in his, in his jealousy? When the people that He has loved and people that He has redeemed pursue something other than Him. Divided loyalties. When His people turn their hearts away from Him to something else. God is demanding from His people Complete and total devotion. Complete and total faithfulness. I am a jealous God. And he's giving notice that he does not put up with divided loyalties. Now when we turn to the book of Isaiah, the book that we've been studying here this year, we see that nothing has changed. I mean, God is the same yesterday, and tomorrow. He is a jealous God. He shares his glory with no one. And chapters 40 through 48, those first nine chapters of the second half of the book of, uh, of Isaiah, chapters 40 through 48, particularly focus on that, that idea, that concept. God's singularity is to be worshipped. God alone. And He won't put up with idolatry. So, for instance, we can read something like in chapter 40... To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman craftsman. A goldsmith plates it with gold. A silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot, and he seeks out for himself a skilled craftsman to prepare an idol that it will not totter. Well, to whom then will you liken me, that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and of his strength and his power. Not one of them is missing. Or chapter 42, we see a verse like this. They shall be turned back, be utterly put to shame, those who trust in idols, who say to molten images, you are our God's. Chapter 45, we can read this, truly you are the God, you alone are God, you hide yourself, you're the God of Israel, you're the Savior, they will put, be put to shame, even humiliated, all of them, the manufacturers of idols, they'll go away together in humiliation. Israel has been saved by Jehovah, by Yahweh, the Lord, with an everlasting salvation, You will not be put to shame or humiliated to all eternity. So gather yourselves and come. Draw near together, you fugitives and of the the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save them. Or the next chapter, chapter 46. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on a scale hire a goldsmith and he, he makes it into a god. They bow down, indeed they worship it. They lift it upon the shoulder, they carry it, they set it in its place, and it stands there. It doesn't move from its place. And though one may cry to it, it cannot answer, it cannot deliver him from his distress. All throughout this section, it's a, it's a polemic that Isaiah writes against the, the veneration of these gods, these false idols. It says in chapter 48, verse 5, therefore... I declare them to you long ago. Before they took place, I proclaimed them to you. He's talking about future events that are going to take place. And if he says, I did that, I proclaimed them to you so that you would not say, my idol has done them and my graven image and my molten image have commanded them. Over and over again, there is this call to denounce idolatry. The most scathing denunciation in this section of Isaiah, comes smack dab in the middle of those, that first nine chapters in chapter 44. So take your Bibles real quickly. We'll look at chapter 44 in a little more detail. Chapter 44. Uh, before we uh, look in this passage, I do want to give you a little bit of, of background. Some interesting things I discovered related uh, to the, the making of these idols that archaeological discoveries have shown us. Um, Archaeological findings of this pretty much this basic era of ancient Mesopotamia, ancient Babylon, about the same time that Isaiah is writing this, uh, reveal that um, this whole thing of idol manufacturing it, it, was, it was a big deal. The craftsmen themselves were viewed to be divinely inspired that as they made these images, they were somehow being. Uh, infused with the, with, the, with the deity of above, which we know, according to Deuteronomy 32, was nothing more than demonic spirits. Um, so the craftsmen were believed to be divinely inspired. For the Babylonians, uh, there was a definite point in the manufacture and the making of these idols that the, that the deity of the spirit world would inhabit that crafted image. And there would be a ceremony. It would take place at a ceremony. And again, this is all found in these, these uh, clay tablets and things that were on earth. Um, it all took place at a ceremony that was called the opening of the mouth. Kind of sounds like the beginning of a sermon, doesn't it? The opening of the mouth. In the opening of the mouth ceremony, it was a two-day event, the um, people would assemble at, at the river, at a river, the tools of the craftsman, the hammers, the chisels, the tools that were used to craft and fashion these idols would be sewn into the carcass of a sheep and then thrown into the river. It would be um, so venerating this deity that the very uh, tools that were used would not be used again and they would, they would throw them away. And then they would celebrate and dance and sing. That was the first day. And the second day of this Opening of the mouth ceremony, the the time when the when the deity would enter what had just been fashioned, the craftsmen themselves, in a symbolic way, would be their hands, arms would be would be tied with a red um, rope, a red yarn, and again in a symbolic way, a wooden sword would would um, kind of um, go through the motions of of, of, of chopping off the hands. And the craftsman would, um, would speak these words that basically said, I did not make you, the craft God made you. And so he would be disavowing his, any involvement at that point. And so there would be this separation of the craftsman, now the deity had come, I did not make you, the craft God made you. Even though they were divinely inspired by the craft God. Um, so we come to Isaiah 44, and we see a passage that is dripping with sarcasm. It's like Isaiah, Isaiah's going to have some fun with this. Isaiah, by the way, he, he, he knows this whole process of idol-making. He lived in that culture. He was a brilliant man. He knew exactly what these people, how they uh, these ancients crafted their gods. And so in chapter 44, he writes this polemic against idol-making. He talks about the futility of idolatry. And then he talks about the reason for idolatry's futility. And then he closes with how utterly stupid (laughs) the folly of idolatry. It was a big concern in Isaiah's day. Look at verse 9 of chapter 44. Those who fashion a graven image are all of them futile, or the NIV says, they're nothing. The new King James says, they are useless. He starts out with a bang. He said, those, those craftsmen, you know, you know those, those skilled, divinely inspired builders of idols, they're nothing. They're a, they're a ten with the one rubbed out. They're nothing. And they're precious things they're no profit. It's meaningless. There, there's nothing gained by these things that they craft. Even their own witnesses fail to see and know. And so they will be put to shame. And he asks in verse 10, so who has fashioned a god or cast an idol to no profit? Who does such stupid things, worthless, empty, useless, profitless things? Verse 11, Behold, all his companions will be put to shame, for the craftsmen themselves are mere men. Isaiah said, hey hey folks, wake up. Hello? We're talking about, you know, Bill and Jim, you know, your neighbors down the street, Sally and Sue, you know. they're They're just mere people, mere men. Let them all assemble themselves. Let them stand up. Let them tremble. Let them be together put to shame. Verse 12, the blacksmith, the, the, the man shapes iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working it with his strong arm. And guess what? He gets hungry. <laughs> his strength fails. He drinks no water, so he becomes weary. Look, we're talking about mere human beings. There's nothing special about these guys verse 13, that another craftsman or or carpenter shapes wood. He extends a measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. He works it with with planes and outlines it with a compass and makes it like like the form of a man, like like a beautiful man, so that I can just sit in a house. Get the sarcasm that Isaiah's writing with? He does all this work using all his skill, all his tools, to fashion something that just sits in the house? Verse 14, surely he cuts cedars for himself, and he takes a cypress or an oak, and he he raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a a fir, and and this is where all the translations uh, um, translate the word differently. Uh, my New American Standard says he plants a fir. Uh, the Old King James Version said he plants an ash. The NIV and New King James says he plants a pine. The English Standard Version said he plants a, uh, a cedar. Um, it, it actually was a word that was used in that day of this, of this preferred wood, whatever it was. You can see the different translations, but it was a particular wood that was the preferred wood to carve out idols. The craftsman, the, the, the person takes this wood, he, he goes out to the forest, he cuts down the tree himself. He, he may plant it himself. And Isaiah is simply saying, Look, well, th- 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 this is not rocket science. Well, he wouldn't have said that, but he would say, this stuff, it doesn't drop from the sky. The guy is going out to the forest and cutting his own piece of wood. Or he's raising the tree himself. It's like, are, are you getting this, folks, as he writes this? And not only that, the rain makes it to grow. He doesn't do some mumbo jumbo dance over it. He's not some divinely inspired, you know, uh, someone from the netherworld causing this thing. It's a stupid tree from the forest. And keep reading, verse 15. And it becomes something for a man to burn. He takes one of them and warms himself. He makes a a fire to bake bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He, He makes a graven image and falls down before it. The same piece of wood that he got from the forest. The very same piece of wood. Part of it he's burning and making food. Look at verse 16. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half he eats meat and he roasts a roast and is satisfied. And he warms himself and he says, Aha, I'm warm, I've seen the fire. Verse 17, but the rest of it he makes into a god. His carved, his graven image, and he falls down before it and worships. And he prays to it and he says, deliver me for you are my God. Are you kidding me? Part of it, I just made a roast beef sandwich and the other part I bow down and say, deliver me, save me. Verse 18, Here's the utter folly. This is, gets at the core of it. Verse 18, they don't know, nor do they understand. Otherwise, very intelligent people, no doubt, but they don't have a clue. For he has smeared over their eyes. He has shut their eyes. The NIV says he's plastered over their eyes so they cannot see. Their hearts, they cannot understand, they cannot comprehend. Verse 19, no one recalls, nor is there knowledge, understanding to say, man, I, I've burned half of it in the fire, and, and I've baked bread over its coals, I roast meat and eat it, then, then I make the rest of it into an abomination, I fall down before a block of wood? Verse 20, he feeds on ashes, a deceived heart has turned him aside, and he can't deliver himself. He, he's, he's locked into this deception. He cannot say, the last little phrase, is, is there not a lie in my right hand? As he's holding up this, this idol that he has just formed, that he went out and cut, that the rain watered and made it grow, and he's holding it, it's, it's like, what's happening here? Why, why can't he say, you know, is this not a lie I've put in my, why? Because of the deception of the heart. the utter folly and futility of idolatry. And Isaiah masterfully in this passage writes this polemic against idolatry. And throughout this section of his prophecy, he focuses on that in these first nine chapters of 40 to 48, and then he he brings in the true God. And next week we'll, we'll look at that. I don't have time today, but, but this section here that we just read is bookended by... Um, the 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 focus on the true God and just look at verse um, verse 6 of chapter 44 thus says the Lord the King of Israel and his Redeemer the Lord of hosts I am the first I am the last there's no God besides me who is like me let him proclaim and declare it yes let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation let them declare to them the things that are coming the events that are going to take place who can do that verse 8 do not tremble, do not be afraid Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? You're my witnesses. Is there any God beside me? Is there any other rock? I know of none. Or at the end of that passage, verse 21. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You These craftsmen are forming their gods. Don't forget, Israel, I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud, your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. So shout for joy, O heavens. The Lord, Jehovah, has done it. Shout joyfully, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into into a shout of joy, you mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. Don't you love that? Yeah, yeah, the, the very place that the craftsman went to go get his idol making wood. You us and every tree in it, shout for joy. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and Israel. He shows forth his glory. The problem of idolatry was, was a major issue, a major concern in ancient Israel. These, this worship of foreign deities and foreign gods, it had infested the culture of God's people. And Isaiah spoke very powerfully, God is a jealous God. How dare you go after such nonsense? Well, that's an interesting little thing of 2,800 years ago, right? (laughs) Um, That was then, this is now. I mean, good night. We don't Do that, right? You're not paying me to craft an idol. I mean, this this doesn't have anything to do with us. It's 28 centuries ago. Well, we come into the New Testament. It is interesting in the New Testament that in the midst of all the idolatry of the first century, the Roman pantheons, the Greek pantheons, Jesus never speaks one word against idolatry in all the Gospels. There are scant comments about it in the epistles. But the Apostle Paul, in Colossians 3, does say this, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and greed, covetousness. Which amounts to idolatry, greed, covetousness. And in that verse, we learn that even Christians can be idolaters. We've often said here at Fellowship that if you want to know what a Christian's capable of doing, read everything. In the New Testament, it tells us not to do it. It gives us a good idea of what we're capable of doing. Impurity, sensuality, evil desires, evil passions, covetousness, greed, which is idolatry. Covetous, greed. It's, it's loving more than God what ought to be loved less than God. It's loving too much what ought to be loved less. The list of those things that we can crave, the, the desires of the heart, that that, that internal longing, the, the wanting. I need that. The list is endless if you think about it. It can be anything. Money, sex, power, things, my car, my home, my job, a position, a relationship, my spouse, my kids, my grandkids. The list is endless. It could be anything. A hobby, some sport I like, respectability, honor, position, and if these things, Paul is saying, if these things become the object of our affections to a higher level than God, if these are the things that deep down we are craving, desiring, longing for, then we, we could call these idols, whether they're good or bad within themselves, which is no doubt why the Apostle John, in his first epistle, The very last verse of his first epistle, he closes his letter by saying, little children, guard yourselves from idols. But it's, I think, right at this point that we have to be careful when we talk about this topic. I wrestled a lot this week with this, and I'm still not sure I have got a handle on it perfectly. Idolatry. But I do think there are three possible dangers when we fixate on on idols of the heart. Let me share them with you. First of all, a danger, a concern is that if everything is potentially an idol, then might it not be possible for some well-meaning, sincere follower of Jesus, a a Christian, to so overanalyze their life? Spend their day wondering, did I, you know, when the grandkids come over to our house, it's very easy to just love on them. Did I, ooh, did I just make them higher than Jehovah God? Oh, I love my job. Man, I, I did I just all of a sudden make that higher? And, and, and sincere Christians can all of a sudden be so introspective and so analyzing. Did I make that an idol? Ooh, is that an idol? It becomes almost a, a, a legalistic uh, passion, a fervor to, to root out anything that, that might be an idol. And the way some Christian authors write about idolatry, everything we do, everything we own, everything we enjoy, everything we love is an idol of the heart. And it can reach a point I think for some well-meaning Christians, do, just, oh, jeez, I can't live this Christian life. Do you realize how many times today or this week I probably put something above God in my effect? Oh, my goodness. I, why even try? We get disheartened. There's no way I can live the Christian life because idols are popping up everywhere. Like, whack them all, and I, I just can't keep ahead of them. And God's grace and God's enabling power just shrinks and shrivels up before all the popping up idols, and we give up. There's a second concern when we focus on idols. It can lead, I think, to a, a judgmentalism, maybe unintended, but my goodness, if I've got a few idols, ha, you people have a whole lot more. Just come and talk with me sometime. Because I'll root out the idols in your heart, those things in your soul that are crying out. Feed me, take care of me. I want this. I'll feel better if I had this, if I got rid of that spouse, if I, I could just achieve that. Oh, you're into idolatry. And I don't want to minimize that, but folks, I think it can lead to judgmentalism real, real quick. We become idol hunters, pointing out everyone else's idolatry and neglect our own. I think when we become idol hunters, we get dulled to what's going on in our own soul. Watch out, says Paul, evil cravings, covetousness, the I wants, it amounts to idolatry. But here's the third concern, and I think it's the more dangerous, the most dangerous of these. You see, if everything is potentially an idol, nothing's an idol. <laughs> I mean, so what's the big deal? All Christians, all of you are just crazy idolaters. Because all Christians have something in their life at any part of the day that we probably put inordinate focus or attention on. Getting to an appointment on time. It seems like I always use this as an illustration, but I guess it shows you my soul. But getting to an appointment on time in the stupid red light. (laughs) Oh, it's an idle mark. But we can put such a focus, and if we label anything as potentially an idol, then the, the great danger is that we lose sight of the real idol. The essence of idolatry. The real source of idolatry, which is, which is that unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. See, the biggest idol in my life is the person that looks back in the mirror at me every morning. And if everything out there is a potential idol, I will fail to look in here. It's my heart. It's, it's, it's my inner cravings and longings. It's my sinfulness, it's my evil propensity to elevate myself, to assuage my fears, to want me to look good, to solve my issues and dilemma. I am my own idol. You see, I think the reality is all those other things are merely the supporting cast. Because the villain on the stage in the spotlight is me. It's me. My inner sinful desires, my inner cravings, my inner longings for whatever it might be, significance, happiness, my personal identity, my own personal peace and well-being, my sense of, of, of satisfaction in life. The supporting casts might be the things out there that I will latch on to to fill that. But the real idol is me. I want that. But that isn't the idol. I am. Instead of desiring and longing for God, we can slip into finding that He has been subtly dethroned, and it's all about me. you find this in Genesis 3, the early pages of the Scripture. The serpent comes to Eve, and Adam is standing there in silence. God knows, Eve, that in the day you eat of this forbidden fruit, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Self deification. And the very next verse says, So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desirable to what? To make one wise, godlike. And she took from its fruit and ate and gave to her husband also, and he ate. And and by the way, the passage doesn't go on to say that apple, Eve, you've just made it an idol or pomegranate, or whatever you want to call it. That's an idol, Eve. No, he said, you're a sinner now. It was merely a a prop, the supporting cast, so that we could bow before the altar of one, me. David sins with Bathsheba. Something in his soul, the longing, the craving. When men went off to war, David stays in his palace and sees Bathsheba and wants her or what she could fill in the crevices of his hurting soul. And Nathan comes to him and says, You've made her an idol. No, he doesn't. Self deification. Many things can play the supporting cast but there's only one true idol it's Mark Carey and the my propensity to crave self-deification and fill whatever hole there is in my soul and folks we all have them to fill it with something other than god why because I want what I want so that it will go well for me, so that I will achieve happiness, find my human identity, and fulfillment and sell satisfaction and peace. When I find greater delight in, in, in a hobby rather than my walk with, with Christ, it's self deification. I spend more time absorbing the entertainment that Hollywood provides instead of the nourishment that Christ provides. Self deification. When any possession dominates my thoughts or captures my affections more than than the Lord Himself, self deification. When social media excites me more than time spent in His Word with Him, self deification. When I find excessive delight in a relationship, a family member, a person, and neglect my relationship with the Almighty God, that's self-deification. When I find more delight in serving Christ than seeking Christ, I'm toying with self-deification. When I find greater confidence in my own strengths and my own capabilities and instead of leaning upon Him and relying upon Him, you can bet your life that I'm worshiping at the altar of Mark Carey. And that's why, as A.W. Tozer once wrote, the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of Him. Daniel Henderson in his Strategic Renewal newsletter writes the germination the germination of all idolatry is rooted in a diluted understanding of God. We undervalue his worthiness, we dismiss his holiness, we disregard his love, we dilate his truth and we forget his jealousy. And we begin to erect idols as our affections drift away from the exclusive worship that he requires. For you shall not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. the antidote to all idolatry is a proper perspective and understanding of God. Which is exactly where Isaiah goes, as we'll see next week. There is no one but me. I'm the beginning and the end and everything in between. The jealousy of God is a difficult subject to consider. It makes me a little bit unnerved because I can see an egomaniac <laughs> saying, it's all about me. And there's something when we humanize that that, that feels wrong. Let me just close by saying this it was the jealousy of God that will allow any one of us to get to heaven. It's the jealousy for His name that sent His Son to the cross to take sinners who were moving in a totally different direction, moving in enmity against God. redeem us and set us free so that we can become the worshipers of God that he demands and it was his love and his grace and his compassion that shaped his jealous heart to call you into an everlasting relationship of love He's a jealous God, and I'm so glad He is, because His jealousy is my ticket to glory. And He calls us, in the meantime, to have no other gods, have no divided loyalties, because He alone is the Worthy One. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you so much for who you are and for the way you've revealed yourself in Scripture. The way you have, through the power of your Holy Spirit and the inerrancy and inspiration of the Scriptures, you you, 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 you show us the reality of who we are. And I pray that there would be the proper conviction and the proper speaking into our life by the Holy Spirit to, to ask of ourselves, um, is, there, is there an altar to myself that I have erected? Help us, Father, to um, just evaluate our life, our thoughts, our actions before you, a a jealous God. Um, And that we would hear over and over, um, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And that means you, Mark Carey. May we leave here, Father, with a sobering reality. There is no one like you, the jealous God, to whom all our praise, our worship, the entirety of our being needs to bow before. In Christ's name I pray, amen.